The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. The title of the message this morning, The Light Brings Sight, or subtitle, A Calvinistic Healing. I think you'll understand that as we as we look into this. Now, you know, from the opening chapters of this gospel, Lazarus depicts Yeshua as the new Moses, the ones promised in Deuteronomy 18. And the Jews of the first century A.D., suffering under Roman rule, were looking for the prophet. They believed that the expected Moses would come, he'd be another Moses who would repeat the Exodus liberation, but on a grander scale. So, during this time, there's this expectation. It's, it's time for something to show up. It's time for something to happen. And so they have this expectation. Now, you need to keep that in your mind as we look at this text today. There's an expectation. And then we have a man who opens the eyes of a blind man. That shit has clicked. Oh, who's this guy? Something's going on here. Well, as Yeshua continues to work wonders which testify of his authority from God, Lazarus emphasizes that the miraculous events are not just miracles, these are signs. And they're signs that point to the fulfillment of prophecy. They're signs that identify Yeshua as the long-awaited Messiah. And in chapter 9, we see another sign. A blind man is given sight, which demonstrates that Yeshua is the promised Messiah. Now, thematically... This chapter is tied to the previous two chapters about the Feast of Tabernacles that we've been looking at in chapter 7 and 8. And we have the reference in 8.12 of Yeshua being the light of the world. Now in 9.5 he's going to say it again, I'm the light of the world and connect this thing. And the miracle of the blind man receiving sight, what it is, it's an illustration. He says, I'm the light of the world, watch this, boom, guy has sight. You can hear it, you can see it, it's amazing. And I think it provides a physical symbol of the darkness that Yeshua referred to in John 3.19 and in 8.12. This darkness, this spiritual blindness, is ours from birth. And in this text, it stresses this man was blind from birth. And I think the reason he's doing that is because that's us. We're blind from birth. We can't see the kingdom of God, John 3.3, unless our eyes are open. We need a miraculous divine intervention to reverse the blindness and to release us from it. We need the light of the world. Sovereign grace dominates this miracle. There's no other reason than his own sovereign choice that Yeshua heals this man. This man doesn't ask for it. He doesn't cry out for it. This man doesn't say a thing. It's just Yeshua, you know, his disciples get in a conversation and he goes over and heals them. I'm the light of the world. Let me show you. Here's a blind man. So Yeshua takes the initiative in this healing. And I think this blind man, again, he's a picture of the condition that every one of us are in since the fall. Everyone is born spiritual blind. This man lacked the ability to see physically. He couldn't see Yeshua. Just as unbelievers lack the ability to see Yeshua spiritually. This is the core truth concerning salvation. It is an act of God's sovereign will. Now, the entire ninth chapter is built around this healing miracle. 
He does the miracle. The rest of the chapter is the discussion of the miracle. Well, you know, the blind man goes, I'm the one. They're saying, well, this guy looks like the one, but he can't be the one because he sees and that guy was blind. And he said, I'm the one. Hey, pay attention, you know, and nobody wants to believe it. We looked at this verse last time. This was the verse we ended for in the end of chapter 8. It says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Yeshua hid himself and went out of the temple. So this is the end of the chapter 7 and 8, the Feast of Tabernacles. He's done discussing with them because they're so mad they just want to kill him. So he leaves. And the next verse says, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Alright? Now, as he passed by, that's really kind of nebulous. It doesn't give us much chronology there. We don't know where exactly this is, when exactly this is. The best we can do is say these events transpired sometimes after the Feast of Tabernacles and in between that and the Feast of Dedication. That's the timeline we have there. So three months, you know, basically could be anywhere in that three months. There's two connections of the context of this story with the Feast of Tabernacles. The first is verse 5 with the repetition of Yeshua's statement about being the light of the world. This has an obvious connection to the ceremony in the Feast of the Tabernacles, the illumination ceremony that took place in the tabernacle. They lit these huge lights, these menorahs, and then Yeshua stood up and said, I'm the light of the world. The second is the connection that appears in verse 7, where the blind man is sent to wash in the pool of Siloam. This was the pool that the priest drew water out of for the water ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles. So that connects this to those. They create a literary and a theological link between chapter 9 and the material in 7 and 8. So it says he saw a blind man from birth. Now, he's just going out and he sees this blind man. How does he know he's blind from birth? Well, because he's Yeshua, alright? And he knows that stuff, alright? We know from verse 8 of this text of chapter 9 that this man's a beggar. Well, he'd have to be, right? That's, you know, there's no welfare, no government assistance or anything like that. He's got to take care of himself somehow, so he begs. Now, here's something we probably don't think about too often, but this culture, a man that's begging, that's all he knows how to do. Uh, Kenneth Bailey says this. He says, the difficulty with this profession, begging, is that some visible handicap is necessary. That's not necessary today. You can stand on any corner and beg, okay? You don't have to. You look perfectly fine to me, you know, but I'd rather not work. All right? So they had to have something visible. He says, a man with one leg or one arm might manage to support himself by begging on the street corner. But a blind man is virtually guaranteed success. At the same time, a blind man, such as the beggar in this story, has no education, no training, Employment record or marketable skills. If healed, support will be extremely difficult. You know, we don't think about that. But this guy, you all you think, boy, you want to get healed. Well, now you're healed. Now I can't beg anymore. And I don't know how to do anything else. So now what? Indeed, is it not in his interest to remain blind? And in this case, this guy doesn't ask to be healed. Once he is healed, how's he going to support himself? That's something, again, we don't think about, but that's part of that culture. Now, where do you think this blind man was begging at? Most likely, he's at the temple. All right? 
beggars usually sat at the temple gates or shrines hoping for the benefit of the donors. Because listen, these people are going to worship. You see a guy, you know, and you're like, oh man, no, no, I, I gotta be spiritual. I gotta give you some money, you know? And, and I mean, they'd be feeling most pious. You know, we see this in Acts chapter three. It says, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was begged, was being carried along, along, whom they used to sit down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. So they carried him to the temple, set him down at the gate in order to beg alms of those who are entering the temple. I mean, that's a good place to beg, all right? Go to the temple because, you know, people are spiritual, they're coming in. And listen, if they're Israelites, they're coming to worship at the temple, they're required to give. Deuteronomy 15.11 For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. So it's custom. You're going to worship and you can't really go in there and worship and ignore this guy. You got to give him something, all right? So it's a good place and they're sustaining a living. And the Jews regarded blind people as especially worthy of charity. I understand, they, they can't, it's hard to do anything, all right? Now, blindness is something we really see all over in the Gospels. It's a really common experience in the New Testament times. Why? What is the greatest ancient contributor to blindness? Anybody know? How come all these people are blind? What? Moonshine. No, not moonshine. <laughs> Gonorrhea. Gonorrhea. Alright, there's no treatment for that then. When a mother had gonorrhea, the baby passing through the birth canal would be caused to be blind from that gonorrhea. Today, well, I don't know today, when my last daughter was born, which was almost 30 years ago, the hospital was still, every baby that was born had to have silver nitrate put in its eyes. Why? In case the mother had gonorrhea. Now, we had a major fight with the hospital. I said, my wife does not have gonorrhea, and you're not putting silver nitrate in her eyes. And I wouldn't let them. And they didn't want to let us go home from the hospital because of that. But, you know, it's, it's, I said, it's not a needed thing. It's just a tradition you do. I know you make money on it, but you're not doing it. All right? But, if yeah, if the mother's got gonorrhea, it will save the child, and the child can have sight. So if you're not sure, yeah, put some nitrate in their eyes, silver nitrate. All right, so this man is blind from birth. Now, this particular phrase here in the Greek, ek genete, does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. But it's good Greek for from the hour of birth. From the second this man was born, he's always been blind. Now, the fact that this guy is born blind is mentioned five times in this text. And the amazing power of the miracle is stated or inferred five times also. This healing is so amazing. This healing is so impossible that the people and the Pharisees found it incredible. Some of the neighbors didn't believe it's the same man. They're like, I don't think this is the guy. They saw him every day. I don't think that's him, but it looks like him. Well, the healed man says, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. This is an incredible miracle. Nobody's ever heard anything like this. I think it stresses the man was born blind from birth because this man is representative of humanity. All mankind is spiritually blind from birth. 
The Scriptures make that very plain. They say the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. Why? Because he needs his mind open. We're all born blind. It also shows us that Yahweh must do something in order for us to see. You know, this man, I think, shows us that lost people don't need a little more information. I mean, that's what we think today. Well, if they just got a little more information, if I could just show them this or show them that, just get a little, they'd make the right decision, they'd get saved. They need a miracle. They need spiritual sight that only God can give. When Paul preached and Lydia was sitting in the audience, the scripture says, and with that information, she believed. No, it doesn't say that. It says, whose heart the Lord opened. So she could understand. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? They're walking along with Shua. They can't understand the things that's going on. They don't even know who he is. And it says the Lord opened their eyes so they could attain to the things that were taught. He was teaching them. And all of a sudden their eyes are open and they're like, wow. Listen, we can't understand spiritual things apart from divine enablement. So the man born blind is a living, visible illustration of that truth. This is how we're all are, all right? The light of the world must give us light so we can see who he is. All right, so his disciples asked him, Rabbi, he's, that's what Yeshua is. He's a Jewish rabbi, okay? Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. This is the first direct mention of disciples since chapter 6. They're not mentioned in 7 and 8. Now, you know that when someone's blind, their other senses are heightened, Right? So I don't know how far this guy was away, but he probably heard this conversation, I would think. I mean, he's listening to travelers go back and forth, and especially when Yeshua comes by because there's a stir there. And so his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, did he be born blind? What is wrong with that question? All right, that's one thing. They're assuming that this blindness was a punishment. They're assuming that. But, I mean, these guys have been with the Lord for almost three years. They walk along, they see a blind man, they say, hey, get her. let's have a theological discussion. Why do you think this guy's blind? Why didn't they say, Yeshua, look, another opportunity for the glory of God. I mean, you calmed the storm on the water, you teleported us to land, you fed thousands of people. This is exciting, Lord. Are you going to heal this blind man? No. None of that compassionate, caring stuff from these guys. Hey, what do you, who do you think's the sinner here? Him or his parents? He deserved this, but why? Why, why did this happen? You know, they just don't seem to be acting much like their Lord. That give you a little relief? They walk with them for three years, face to face, walk with them. Maybe that's why we're having some trouble still, okay? But they, they're not picking it up. And they should have. Because look at the Lord. This is Matthew chapter 20. Another blind man, two blind men, sitting by the road, hearing that Yeshua was passing by. See, I mean, you had to know when he was going by, even if you're blind, because there's a commotion. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told him, shut up, be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So Yeshua stopped, and he called them. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? You think he didn't know? <laughs> Here's a couple of blind guys. They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. Moved with compassion. Yeshua touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight 
and followed Him. Eleven times in the Gospels, we're told that Yeshua felt compassion for different people in need. He feels compassion for them. Look at Mark 141. And moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. The Greek word here for compassion is splagnizomai, which really it comes from the bowels, and the verb means to move the bowels. Now, not the way you think, move the bowels. The bowels were the seat of emotion, okay, feeling, all right? So he's moved by this. And it's a strong word. It means to be moved on the outside by that which compels him on the inside. You know, sometimes we see a situation where we say, oh, I really feel bad for them. That's not this. This word goes beyond. It's so moved that you actually want to do something to help. So he's moved by this. Now, in the compassion of Christ, we see that Yahweh is a compassionate God. He, this is God in the flesh. So we see this is Yahweh. He is a compassionate God. You know, when Moses stood before the Lord on Mount Sinai, Yahweh revealed Himself to Israel's leader. And the first adjective the Lord used to describe Himself to Moses is compassion. Then Yahweh passed by in front of Him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. People, compassion belongs to Yahweh. It's a vital aspect of His divine nature. So, when we look at Christ, it shouldn't surprise us. He's a reflection of God. He's showing us God. And we see that He is compassionate. He's a compassionate God. Well, let's take it a little further. As Christians, we're to imitate our Heavenly Father. In other words, we have a duty to be compassionate. We are image bearers. When people look at us, they should see our God. We have to be compassionate. Colossians 3.12 says, And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy, we're holy ones, beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This phrase could be translated, put on heartfelt compassion or have a deep gut level feeling of compassion. Believers, we cannot be indifferent to suffering. We should be concerned to meet people's needs. God wants us to be full of compassion, full of pity for others. And too often we can be hard-hearted towards the people around us in need. You know, the world is heartless today. It's become indifferent to suffering and hurt. But as God's children, we are to have a heartfelt compassion towards those who hurt. And people, listen, we are not natural. We're supernatural. God dwells in us. We have the Spirit of Yeshua and we are called to be like Him. And part of that is to be compassionate. Now you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not very compassionate. What do I do about it? Well, let me tell you something. The more time you spend with your Father, the more you will begin to look like Him and act like Him. We see that in human life, don't you? You hang around someone and they pick up each other's manner. Your husband and wife, after a time, they... You know, complete each other's sense. They say the same thing, alright? Listen, walk with Him. Be with Him. Spend time in the Word of God. Spend time, you know, in prayer and spend time with other believers that will encourage you to, in the Word of God. If you have trouble with compassion, just spend some more time with your God. You'll start to feel what He feels. 
Because again, we're not natural. We're not to act natural. So disciples don't seem to be too compassionate towards this man. They just want to know who sinned. So here is their premise. All sickness is a result of sin. That's, that's their, the implication is that the righteous are somehow protected from the affliction that sinners suffer. From the penalty of their sins or their parents' sins. So a person who suffered an illness or a handicap in their life was assumed to have brought on the tragedy by their own sin. Now, despite the story of Job and his faithfulness to God during undeserved suffering, most Jews in Yeshua's time believe that all suffering was caused by sin. And I don't mean the sin of Adam. They're talking about personal sin. All right, Suffering is caused by personal sin. They believe there was a direct relationship between sin and affliction. One of the rabbis said, no death without sin, no suffering without iniquity. And they mean personal iniquity. So these Jews were in effect kind of pioneers of the modern health wealth gospel that teaches that same blasphemy nonsense. Okay, This is a horrible doctrine. A horrible doctrine. Because it teaches people that if you're having physical problems, basically, you're not righteous. God's kind of, He's judging you because you messed up somehow. And the proponents of the health wealth gospel teach that God rewards increasing levels of faith with greater and greater amounts of health and wealth. So just be righteous and man, the money will be roll, you know, pouring in and you'll be healthy as you can be. They teach that God not only gives you eternal life, He wants you to be rich and healthy and pain-free and problem-free. Nice. Who wouldn't sign up for that? Right? That's why their churches are mega churches. Everybody wants what they're selling. Problem is, they can't produce it. It works for the people at the top of the food chain. Because they keep, you know, you got to give your seed money. And then God will make you rich. Listen to what one of their teachers says. Kenneth Hagin. I am fully convinced, I would die saying it, it is so, that it is the plan of our Father God in His great love and His great mercy that no believer should ever be sick. Every believer should live his full lifespan down here. What is his full lifespan? That every believer should finally just fall asleep in Jesus. No believer. So, okay, so you're a believer... And you go to this church, you're under this ministry, and you're sick. As I tell you, something's wrong with my life, my faith, my relationship with God. He's left me, he's rejected me. What? This is devastating to people. And it's not true. That's the problem. It's a false gospel. The carnal fault with the health wealth gospel is the one carnal tenet that God wills the physical health and financial prosperity of every Christian. It's just sad. You're out of the will of God if you're sick. Now, did the disciples of our Lord live in total victory? Were they healthy, wealthy, and pain-free? Where do you get that stuff in the Bible? Read Hebrews chapter 11. Read the story of the faithful and the the suffering that they went through. You know, none of the apostles were rich. They all underwent incredible testing and suffering. And at least in Paul's case, Paul had health problems and extreme testing. 
Material privation. He's I've learned how to live with nothing. He's been through it. Well, Paul, you just didn't understand the health of the gospel. God wants you rich. Paul said, what am I doing wrong? How come I'm not rich? Now, let me ask this. Can sickness come as a result of personal sin? Yes. Okay, good class. I'm glad to hear that. That a specific illness or experience of suffering can be a direct consequence of sin, I think is seen throughout the Scriptures. Remember Miriam, when she confronted her brother Moses about, you're taking too much on yourself, what happened to Miriam? Leprosy. Oh, did that get your attention, Miriam? You want to be quiet now. All right. How about 1 Corinthians 11.30? Paul writes to the Corinthians, for this reason, many among you were weak and sick and a number sleep. You're dying. You're not only sick and weak, you're dying because of your sin. Listen, so sin can come, I mean, sickness can come as a result of sin. But all sickness is not the effect of individual sins. And we have to understand that distinction. I don't think we need to be judging people. Look what Paul says. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. What? Why did Paul have physical problems? Because he was sinning? No. For this reason. To keep me from exalting myself. To keep me humble. To keep me from sinning. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. Paul says, you know, I got this problem. And the reason I got it is God's just blessing me. It's keeping me humble. It's not because of sin in his life. How about Job's case? The Bible states he's a godly man. And he goes through all this difficulty. No fault of his own. Now, what's interesting about this question here, how do they ask, how do they ask this question? Who sinned? Was it this man? How could it be that man? He was born from, blind from birth. What, did he sin in utero? In vitro, he sinned or something? What, what, how do you do that? What's the question here? How do they come up with this question? Some rabbis taught that the baby can sin in the mother's womb. So the Jews believed in prenatal sin. Okay? That's what prenatal vitamins are for, to take care of that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Mishnah Rabbah, Song of Solomon's 141, which is a rabbinic work, states this. When a pregnant woman worships in a heathen temple, the fetus also commits idolatry. So they believe, yeah, the child can sin in the womb. So then he can be born all messed up because he sinned in the womb. Now, according to Arthur Pink, he says some of the Jews believed in reincarnation. So that may have been the back of the disciples' minds. In other words, they must have messed up in a former life. <laughs> you know, because now they're a mess. So that was on the table also. But notice how Yeshua answered their question. He answered it, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen, this is important here. Yeshua is destroying their theology. Alright? He rejected both conclusions that could be drawn from the Jewish assumption. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. So Yeshua is saying, somebody can have a severe, lifelong illness that has nothing to do with their own personal sin or that of their parents. 
Now that, that wasn't what they believed, but that's what he's telling them. No, you guys got your theology wrong. We're having a theology discussion here. Let me straighten you out on it. Okay. Neither this man sinned nor his parents. And the point Yeshua is making is not that suffering didn't come as a result of sin because it did, but it was Adam's sin. Yeshua said the explanation is found in the sovereign determination of God who has this man at this very place for a specific purpose. He answers the disciples' questions in terms of the purpose of the man's blindness, not the cause. They say, what's the cause? And he says, you got to understand the purpose, not the cause. The man's condition has been sovereignly ordained so that the words of God might be revealed through him. He says, it was so that the works of God might be displayed. You know, here's what he's saying here, people. He's blind for the glory of God. He's blind so we can come to this moment and this healing and the power of God will be put on display and the works of God manifest and God can be glorified. You say, wow, well, this guy's been blind his whole life. Think of the agony his parents went through. Think of the agony he went through. And this is just all for the glory of God. People, there's nothing more important than the glory of God. That's the most important thing. And God intends to display His glory through this blindness. Now, in this case, He displays His glory by healing. The glory of God is put on display through the power of healing. But there's nothing that says the power of God has to be displayed in healing. See, when Paul cried out three times for his thorn in the flesh to be removed, it says this, and he said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, he's praying, Lord, get rid of this thorn in the flesh. Get rid of this ailment of mine. And God says, my grace is sufficient. What's that mean? I can get you through it. You don't have to have it go away. I can take care of it. Now watch what he says. My power, power is perfected in weakness. What that's saying is, God's saying my power is perfected in your weakness. Okay? And then Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness and insults, with distress, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. What's he mean? He's saying when I am weak personally in myself, Christ's strength becomes manifest in me because I trust him instead of myself. And that's what life's about, learning to trust him instead of ourselves. You know, when everything's going your way and you got no physical problems and you're doing good, you're like, I got this, God. Kind of stand back and just watch me. I'll call you if I need you. But when you're in a situation, you're like, I need you every day. So in Paul's case, God put his power on display not by healing him, by sustaining him. The blindness is for the glory of God. The thorn in the flesh is for the glory of God. The healing is for the glory of God. The non-healing is for the glory of God. And you know what a difference that makes if we realize that the experiences that we have are the things that God has brought to us in order that His grace might be manifest. He wants to put His grace on display. And, and what power is seen in the Christian life when the Christian life is, is, as the world would look at it, a miserable existence because this person is going through all kinds of problems and stuff, but yet you are rejoicing in the glory of God. They're like, well, there must be something to this Christianity thing. Notice what Paul writes about suffering. Okay? You're not going to believe this, so I'm going to show it to you, okay? Because you just got to see it, all right? Because nobody thinks this is real. He's writing the Philippians. So for you, it's been granted. For Christ's sake, 
not only to believe in him, that's a matter of grace, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul realizes that the threat of persecution and hostility can cause believers to question the goodness of God. Have you ever asked the question, if God loves me, why am I going through this? Well, in order to enable these Christians to bear up under persecution, they need to be reminded that suffering, listen, suffering is as much a part of God's purpose for their lives as them believing in Christ. Every bit as much. The verse says, it has been granted. That's the Greek verb, karizomai. comes from keros, which means grace. So karizomai is grace. The noun form used here is used of spiritual gifts. Vine's expository dictionary of the New Testament words say, Charismai primarily denotes to show favor or kindness. <laughs> what? God is showing you favor or kindness and that He's allowing you to suffer for His sake. Suffering is a grace gift from God. Now, is that hard to believe? I think it is for us. But notice he compares suffering with salvation. Not only to believe, it has been granted. It's a matter of grace. Not only that you believe, that's an act of grace. We all agree with that, all right? But also that you suffer for his sake. Both are grace gifts. Both are. He doesn't say suffering is punishment or that it's something that happened to you by chance. God gives sufferingly, suffering as graciously and lovingly as he gives faith to believe in his son. Does that make any sense to you? Doesn't to me. No. Suffering, affliction, oppression, or gracious gifts? How does Paul say that? I think this should show us how far we moved in our thinking from the Christianity of the first century. This is what they taught. Suffering's a grace gift. They were, remember the, the apostles got beat for preaching and what'd they do? They rejoiced. Oh, we, we're worthy to suffer for his name. And you're scratching your head thinking, what's wrong with these people? That doesn't make sense to us. That we should be grateful for it? That it should make us happy? That it should make us feel honored and blessed? That we should see it as a manifestation of God's love for us? That doesn't make sense to us, but it did to those first century believers. They were familiar with suffering. And you know, let me tell you something, people. Suffering never, ever, ever hurt the church. It perfected it. It grows it. You know what hurts the church? Prosperity. That's what hurts the church. Well, maybe we should tear this verse out of the Bible and throw it out. You know, I mean, Paul, he just an, it's an isolated instance of a raving man who's got a martyr complex. You know, this guy wasn't right in the head. He'd been beat too many times. All right? No. This is the inspired Word of God. I don't know how the health wealth teachers deal with this kind of stuff. It doesn't fit in their theology. They, spit, they stick to a few verses that they know this is a good verse. Totally out of context. You know, that they destroy the verses because there's no verse that teaches that. I really like, and I, I think he really nailed it, John Piper in his 1986 book called Desiring God. Great book that Piper did. Piper says this in this book. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Get that, people. When we are satisfied, when we are thankful, when we are grateful people, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what's going on in life, when we are thankful people, God is most glorified in us. 
Because it's easy to be thankful when everything's going your way. God is most glorified in us. We are most satisfied, at peace, content in Him. The Lord goes on and says, we must work the works of Him who sent me as long as the day night is coming when no one can work. We've got to get about our business. Now, notice here, we and me. I tell, well, we must work or the one who sent me. Well, Brandon and Loken say this, the earliest manuscripts have, it is necessary for us to do the deeds of the one who sent us. But some early manuscripts and related later witnesses have, I must do the deeds of the one who sent me. And most witnesses early and late, the pronouns agree. The difference is whether the pronoun is plural or singular. So I think that, you know, like I said, the better manuscripts, the pronouns agree. We must do the work of sent, sent us. All right. The disciples are right along there with them. He's pulling the disciples into the we. They are all together called to do the work that God has given them. An interesting word here in this text is the word must. This word must is a word of divine necessity. We saw it back in 4.4 where it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. It's the same Greek word, it's day. It's often translated must in the fourth gospel. It seems that whenever Lazarus uses this impersonal verb day, the necessity involves God's will or plan. Although the Pharisees were threatening to kill Yeshua, he says, listen, we've got to do the works that we're called to do. The works sent by the Father. And he's about to do one. And he says the day and the night here. This is another example of light and darkness imagery that John used all through this gospel. I think he's saying here the days of opportunity are indeed short. But I think he's referring specifically to the nation Israel. Night's going to come for Israel. They got a small window of opportunity to repent and be saved. Or Jerusalem is going to be trampled. They're going to be destroyed. The nation's going to be judged for their sin. Especially for its rejection of Messiah, who was very clearly, very plainly, the Messiah. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In 8.12, in connection with the Jewish ceremony of, of the lighting of the torches and the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua boldly proclaimed, I'm the light of the world. Here he repeats that and then demonstrates it by healing the blind man. Yeshua is the true light because without Him, all creation is in darkness. Creation and mankind cannot understand themselves. They can't know whether anything is right spiritually or wrong until they are touched by the light. Lazarus told us in one nine, the world was the Word was the real light that gives light to everyone. He's the light to the world. Without Him, the world doesn't have light. And he says this, when he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied it to his eyes. Now, when he had said this, when he had said what? I am the light of the world. And the next thing he does, watch this. I'm going to show you I'm the light of the world. I'm going to demonstrate it to you. All right? So he proceeds to illustrate the point by giving light to a man that was born blind. He spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied it to his eyes. Again, I want you to notice here, Yeshua takes the initiative. The blind man becomes the object of divine mercy. This is a Calvinistic healing. The guy didn't ask for it, didn't do anything. He's just sitting there minding his own blind business. And Yeshua comes along and heals him. Now, why does Yeshua use spit and mud to heal this man? 
You know, we already read Matthew. He just spoke the word to those two blind men. Boom. And they see. Here he's putting mud on this guy. You know, there are so many answers to this you wouldn't believe. You know, people just get fascinated and they dig into here. Why mud? Why spit? Da, da, da. You know, and they're digging up all kinds of things. <laughs> In one of the healings, he just applied saliva to the deaf man with the speech impediment in the Decapolis in Mark 7. And he did it to the blind man in Bethesda in Matthew or Mark 8.23. So why spit? Well, scholars have often cited rabbinic opinion to the effect that saliva of the firstborn of a father has healing properties, but not the saliva of the firstborn of the mother. That's in a rabbin, one of the rabbinic teachings. See, spit was recognized in the ancient times as having medicinal, even magical value. We don't see it that way. You don't like getting spit on today. But then, you know, one of the healings, the guy's blind, and it says, Yeshua spit in his eyes. You'd be like, oh. That's now, to them, it's like, hey, this is, this is magical. This has healing properties. That's what they believed about saliva. So they thought a little differently about saliva than we do. Now, some say that Yeshua used saliva and mud because he wanted to, try to associate the healing with divine creation. He's going back to Genesis 2, 7. He's basically creating eyes. And he wants people to see this is creation. I think that's kind of a good guess there. You know, he's God. He's creating these eyes. Like I said, there's so many guesses to this. that it's, But they're just that. They're guesses. Okay, they're opinions. We don't really know. But let me tell you what I think is the best answer. I think the best reason for this whole spit and mud thing is found in verse 14. Now it was the Sabbath on the day Yeshua made the clay and opened his eyes. How's that connect? What? You can't work, okay. I think Yeshua is deliberately violating the man-made additions to the law of Moses the Jews had invented. Because he's creating a conflict here. I just gave the blind man sight. That's a miracle. But I did it on the Sabbath. That's bad. So what, what's going, that's a conflict. They're like, ah, well, he violated the Sabbath. No, he didn't violate the Sabbath. He violated their additions to the Sabbath. See, making clay was a breach of a prohibition on kneading, kneading, like kneading dough on the Sabbath. Mishnah, Shabbat 7-2 said, kneading dough or other substances on the Sabbath was prohibited. See, he had to stir it up. Oh, that's a violation. You sp- Stirred that mud and with your spit in there. No, you can't do that. I think he did it purposely to cause controversy with the religious leaders. He wants the conflict there. You know, okay, look at this. Now, how do you judge this? I'm going to do something you've never seen before. But I'm doing it in a way you think I shouldn't do it. So what? how do you reconcile it? And that's the whole rest of the chapter. They're talking about that. It's a violation of Sabbath. How can this be? And remember... What he already said, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person. So, here's a big conflict. No one's ever done this. It points to Messiah, but well, I'm doing it on the Sabbath, so you got a problem. you got to deal with it. See, Yeshua, we talked about this earlier in, the, in this book. Yeshua was not seeker-sensitive. Okay? He wasn't trying to say things to appease them, to make them feel good. You know, he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part. And they're like, oh, that's nasty. That's horrible. What's this guy doing? That's not seeker-sensitive language. He's trying to drive them away because they're unbelievers. 
That's what he's doing here. Look at him violating your idea of the Sabbath. But no one ever did this before. So how do you explain it? And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and he washed and he came back sealing. He came back seeing. That word pool is there. Siloam is the pronunciation of that. Siloam likely had some mythological reputation surrounding it, suggesting that someone could be healed by entering the pool at a particular time. We saw this in chapter 5, the man sitting by the pool there, wanting to get healed. Well, King Hezekiah, who was a descendant of David, built this pool in the 7th century B.C. He built it, this reservoir, to supply Jerusalem with water in the event the city was besieged by an army. It was inside the walls. So if they get attacked, we got water in here. All right? It's one of the several Jerusalem pools. But the water that fed this pool flowed through a subterranean conduit that he built from Gihon. The stream Gihon. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's a spring which bore the same name of the four rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.13. So they're thinking this water's coming from the Garden of Eden right into Jerusalem there. The prophets of the Old Covenant spoke of the waters of Siloam as a sign of God's divine favor and protection. We see it in Isaiah 8, 6, and 7. Now, let me give you a little historical background here. In the fall of 2004, workers were repairing a sewage pipe in the old city of Jerusalem. They discovered a series of ancient steps leading to a large area covered in waterproof plaster. The Israeli Antiquities Authority officials believed this to be the biblical pool of Siloam, a site lost since the destruction of Jerusalem when it was sacked by the Roman army. And the excavations of the site have revealed a much more elaborate pool and water system than previously believed. And the interesting thing was, this pool they found located right where Lazarus said it was. So the stuff he said in the Bible, they're saying, hey, look at that. It's right there, right where Lazarus talked about. How interesting is that? (laughs) This large freshwater reservoir. And it was a gathering place. And like I said, they thought it had some kind of mystical value. Well, as I said earlier, the pool of Siloam connects this text with the last two chapters during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was from this reservoir that the high priest would go collect the water, carry it up to the altar, and do the water libation, the sacrifice in the courtyard. All right? Now, the water of Siloam symbolized the blessing of the promised Messianic age. That was what they did in the ceremony. That's why he poured the water out. It looked during the Feast of the Tabernacles. So, in Yeshua's case, the source of these blessings is Yeshua. He's the one who has come to heal and restore the sight of Israel. He says, this pool is translated, sent. I want to translate it for you, just so you understand. Siloam means. See, Lazarus makes a point. And the reason I think he does that is because it's important. Or Lazarus, I don't think, would have included this detail. And what he's telling us here, this man was sent to a pool named Sent by a man who was sent from God. Now, Westcott believed that the interpretation of the name of the pool, Sent, connects the pool with Christ. And that, that he is the sent one. We've been seeing that all through. He's the one sent of the Father. It was when the man went to him who was sent from the Father that he received healing. See, Christ is a true Siloam. 
He even said that back in chapter 7, verse 37. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. I'm the water. I'm the water that gives life. So he went and he washed. Again, we hear nothing about this man in the text. You know, he doesn't say a word. He just, you know, the Lord comes over and he makes this mud and they're having a conversation. Oh, let's use this guy for a prop. You know, I mean, he's just sitting there. They make this mud. They put it on his eyes. He says, go and wash. And the guy does what? Are you crazy? What are you talking about? I don't lose my begging job. No, I don't want to do. No, he just gets up and he goes. And Christ never promised him healing. He never says, listen, you go and you'll get healed. Never said anything. He just guy go and the guy goes. That's quite a difference between the response of Naaman. Remember Naaman? Uh, the Syrian who wanted to get healed. I go to Elisha, I get healed. And he, and he goes, he didn't even come out. He didn't come out and see me. He sent a servant. And he told me to go wash in the Jordan. That dirty old Jordan. I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. I'm going home a leper. And the servant says, uh, if he told you to do something great, would you do that? Oh, yeah. Well, let's try this. So he goes and washes seven times. Guess what? He's healed. Leprosy. Skin's like a baby, it says. So now he's like, wow, that's pretty cool. Let me go back and tell him thank you. You know, but he, he had a whole different view. This guy doesn't argue, doesn't complain. He just gets up and goes. And he came back seeing. This man who was blind from birth comes back. Can you imagine? I don't know how he got there. I don't know if he, hey, somebody, hey, take me over to the pool. Take me over. Maybe he knew the way. Maybe he'd been there many times. But anyway, coming back would be a different walk, wouldn't it? Holy mackerel. Look at this. I never saw any of this before. I mean, just for the first time, everything. Sight. You know, there are more miracles of giving sight to the blind recorded of Yeshua than any other category. More blind. Why? What's this miracle tell us? One of the signs of the coming of Messiah would be the Messiah would open blind eyes. All right, listen. The guys he's going to deal with in the rest of his chapter are the Pharisees. These guys had the Tanakh memorized, or the Torah memorized, and a lot of the Tanakh. So they knew what the Messiah was supposed to do. Isaiah 29, 18. On, the day that, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. You think that scripture might have popped into their head, you know? And then one of the great Messianic passages of the Tanakh, the passage in which we find these words, the wilderness and the solitary places shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a rose. Then it says this, the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. In chapter 42, it says that as the servant of Yahweh, part of his ministry would be to open blind eyes. To open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. It's in fulfillment of these prophecies that Yeshua gives sight to the blind. As the light of the world, He has defeated the darkness. Thus the miracle recorded here is significant for John as one of the seven sign miracles which point to the fact of His Messiah. Remember, Lazarus through this book is given us seven signs. This is one of the signs. This shows you this guy's the Messiah. All through the, the Bible has been talking about the Messiah comes, He's going to open the eyes of the blind. Guess what Jesus just did? He opens the eyes of the blind. So you're like, well, can you put that together? There's something else significant here about this. Throughout the Tanakh, the opening of man's eyes is always connected and only connected with Yahweh. Yahweh said to him, 
Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? So who made man's mouth seeing? Or who made man either seeing or blind? Yahweh. Psalm 146.8 says, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. So we find two things in this sign. An evidence of the fact that He is Messiah, clearly. And secondly, confirmation of the fact that Messiah is Himself Yahweh. This is a very important miracle identifying Him as the one for whom Israel had been waiting. Let me say this in the nicest way possible. If you don't see the deity of Christ in the book of John, if you don't see that Yeshua is Yahweh in this gospel, there's something wrong with your eyes. Okay? Because, man, John has been beating this drum. He's been hammering this. We've looked at it every which way up. and He does everything he can to show it. Yahweh opens the eyes. And here, his eyes are open. What? You think they ever put that together? Because he claimed to be God too. So they're like, oh, he claims to be God. He's doing the things God does. Wow, maybe we should catch on. They can't. They're blind. They need their eyes open. Now, throughout the Gospels, our Lord gave sight to a number of people who were blind. But this healing in our text is the only healing of its kind. Every instance of someone blind receiving this sight at the hand of our Lord is different. Isn't that kind of weird? In Matthew's chapter 9 and chapter 20, we read that Yeshua touched the eyes of the blind man. He just touched them and they're healed. In Mark 8, we have the account of Yeshua spitting in the eyes of a blind man and then laying his hands on him and his sight's restored. In Mark 10, Yeshua said to the blind man, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight. In Luke 18, Yeshua simply said, Receive your sight, and the blind man's made whole. Why so many different kinds of healing of the blind? I mean, why didn't you just do it all the same? Why is it changing it up every single time? I think it's, this is why. So they would understand, so we would understand that healing comes from Yeshua, not the method. Man, in our day, people are hung up on methods. You know, we see, oh, this church over here, they're growing. Let's go do what they do. And they go and they study that church. What do you do? How do you do this? What do you wear? What's the preacher wear? Oh, what's he do? What's he say? You know, and they cover, they copy everything he's doing and they go do it. And they say, it's not working for us. It's not about the method. This is about the man, Yeshua. You can't go copy these things and say, well, now it'll work for us. Imagine if Yeshua healed all sick people by spitting on the ground making mud and applying it to their eyes. Can you guess what the televangelists would be doing? <laughs> Instead of anointed hankies, they'd be selling mud. Spit mud. Okay? The healing didn't come from the spit. The healing didn't come from the mud. It came from the will of the sovereign, compassionate God. That's where it came from. You don't have to do everything this way. Now, here's the thing. I was thinking about this, okay. What if these guys all got together, all the blind people? Let's have, we're going to have a formally uh, blind Facebook group. 
For those who were formerly blind, you know, join this Facebook group. And they're all together and they're talking. And then one guy says, you know, in our story, he says, wasn't it awesome that you should have just smeared that mud on us? And then as we washed the mud off, we could see. And the guy, he spit in the eye. I said, there's no mud involved. He just spits in your eye. And the other guy goes, what are you talking about spit mud? He just said, be healed. My eyes got healed. And all of a sudden, these guys are fighting. you got the mudders and the anti-mudders. you got the spitters and the anti-spitters. And they're forming all these different denominations. It's ridiculous. Listen, just because our Lord works a certain way in someone's life doesn't mean He's got to work that way in your life. You'll hear people tell a testimony, Oh, the Lord did this! And you're like, well, I didn't, I didn't feel that. I didn't get that. That's because He's not you. I heard someone tell a testimony. I felt like warm honey coming all over me. I went, yuck. <laughs> that would be a sticky mess. I didn't think that was a good feeling. But anyway, you know, we just think if, if it happened to somebody else, it's got to happen to us. That's not how it works. The Lord deals with us individually. He saves us all the same way, of course. But we have different ex- life experiences. And we can't try to copy anybody or everybody else. Whether God heals or He doesn't heal, He does it for His glory. So our Lord says, He is the light of the world. And then He proves it by giving sight to the blind. Proving that He is the long-awaited Messiah, that He Himself is Yahweh. Now the only way that anyone will ever see the Lord is if He first gives them sight. Because salvation is a sovereign work of God. Now in the rest of this chapter, the people who were there are going to discuss this miracle, what it means, who is this man, what does it mean about this guy, what is his identity, how does he do this? That's the whole rest of the chapter. We've seen that many times. We have a, a miracle and then the rest of it's the theological discussion on why this happened. So we'll look at that next time, but you know, it's interesting because even with seeing the seeing man now, they still don't get it. Can't be. He can't be the same guy. It's gotta be. Ask the parents. Is this your son? That's our son. How's he? We don't know. We know it's our son. We don't know how he got healed. Ask him. He's a babe. It's just, it's, it's crazy conversation. You know, they just, it shows the blindness of humanity. It shows us that apart from the work of God, none of us is going to get it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the story, Lord, and the life of our Lord, and I pray that you would help us to see the truth that this thing reveals, Lord, that you are a sovereign, compassionate God. And you have called us to imitate you. May we be compassionate, Lord, towards those that hurt. Help us also to realize, Lord, that every human being is born in this condition, blind, spiritually blind, separated from you. May we understand that salvation is your work, Lord, every bit of it, and that you would receive all the honor and glory for it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Uh